This is Jared O'Brien for the Christians Engaging Culture podcast. Christians Engaging Culture exists to equip Christians to give a faithful answer in everyday cultural conversations and to turn those conversations to the gospel. This week we are listening to another talk on the difficult topic of abortion. John Wyatt is Emeritus Professor of Neonatal Pediatrics, Ethics and Perinatology at University College in London. His wife Celia has worked with many women who are considering abortion or who have had an abortion. In today's podcast, we hear from John on the humanity of the unborn child, focusing particularly on Psalm 139. Then Celia talks about her personal experience of bringing a woman to the forgiveness found in Jesus after grieving her abortion. She explains the forgiveness Jesus brings through the story of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. You might be aware of the fact that this is a significant textual variant and that the story probably wasn't original to the Gospel of John. I've provided a quick note on that in the episode notes, and even though I wouldn't make any major theological points from that story, I think Celia doesn't draw anything from it that you couldn't faithfully draw from another part of scripture. But we hope you find this episode helpful. We wanted to tackle this morning this difficult subject of, of abortion because it's actually very widespread, as we'll hear. Uh, it affects people at different levels and in different ways. Um, it uh, keeps, uh, you know, it's obviously a personal, sensitive subject for many. It's one that pops up into the public square at regular intervals, uh, and people uh, uh, debate it and, and discuss it. And as Christians, we don't want it just to be a subject we ignore, uh, and we sort of treat in the British way of handling a delicate problem, which is say nothing about it and hope it goes away. Uh, and so we wanted to take some time to actually work out how do we think Christianly about a, a subject like this. Uh, John Wyatt wrote a, a book that we have available more about that later called Matters of Life and Death. But its subtitle, I think, puts it brilliantly, Human Dilemmas in the Light of the Christian Faith. And subjects like this feel like human dilemmas so often. And what light does the Christian faith have to shed on it? We're thrilled that John and Celia are not only part of the church family, but uh, happy to come and uh, help us think it through this morning. Uh, John uh, was not only a consultant pediatrician, but a professor of medical ethics, so he's not only thought through, debated through, discussed uh, uh, topics like this. Uh, Celia, for many years, has talked with and counseled uh, those who've been through abortion so they can bring to us both the theoretical and the practical, both the theological and the pastoral. Uh, and uh, it's great to have them with us. They'll be talking here at the end of the service. Again, I'll, I'll explain more details later. We'll, we'll have a, a, a question time uh, just through in the, the, the Langham room. So if as they talk, you know, a question comes to your mind, uh, make a note of it um, and uh, jot it down, uh, and we'll try and tackle it later uh, in the uh, question and answer time there. But let me pray, then I'll hand over to John Wyatt, and uh, he and Celia uh, can take this next bit for us. Gracious God, you promise that uh, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable, useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. And we pray that you'd take your word and use it to us like that this morning. 
And we pray you that you take John and Celia and uh, keep all their experience submissive to your truth and yet bring it to bear so that we can learn and understand and live more righteously. For Jesus' name's sake, amen. John. Well, it's a fantastic privilege for Celia and myself to have this opportunity to tackle what is a deeply challenging, controversial, and difficult topic. Uh, It's actually just 50 years since abortion was first legalized in the UK, and it remains a deeply painful and divisive topic in our society. There is a whole move, as you may be aware, from some activists to actually decriminalize Uh, abortion completely in this country to take away any kind of criminal law or control. The statistics indicate that between one in four and one in five of all pregnancies in the UK will end in an abortion. Abortion is one of the commonest medical procedures performed in this country. On average, one in three of every woman in our society will have an abortion in their lifetime. And for every woman, there's a man who's also involved. And yet, it's a topic that is rarely, if ever, talked about. It's like a deep but silent wound in our society. And it's not that something just out there, out there in London, out there in society as a whole. No, it's in here as well. It's in this church. There are many people sitting here who've been personally affected in some way by abortion. I'm not saying this to make you feel uncomfortable or judged, but that we need to recognize the reality that many of us are touched in some way or other by abortion. And we need to talk about this issue not with harsh rhetoric or judgment in our voices, but with tears in our eyes. The first responsibility we have as Christians is to recognize the pain, the despair, the lost lives and the broken lives. So let's turn to Psalm 139, page 628 on the Bibles. It would help me if you were able to follow it through with me. I'm going to read it now from verse 1. Psalm 139. You have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise... You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. 
All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. It's a wonderful and moving psalm of David, and we haven't time to unpack it in detail, but it it seems to me that David is, is reflecting on his relationship with God. It's wonder and it's amazing intimacy, but also there's almost a sense of comprehension, of of feeling hemmed in. And therefore he says, he, he says, you're on my back, God. I'm hemmed in by your presence. Maybe I need a bit of space in this relationship. And so verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? I need to get away and get a bit of space. But wherever he goes on the planet, I'm never going to get away from you. Even if I go into the the, the farthest place, even if I go into the dark, you are there. And then he goes back in his own personal history. And he says, maybe I can go back in my own narrative and find a place where God isn't. And wonderfully... And strangely, however far he goes back, God is there. That's why he then says, verse 13, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. So I just want to very briefly look at three headings. Uh, They are creation, covenant, and continuity. And I have to be honest and say I pinched those headings from John Stott's chapter on this topic, but I believe that plagiarism is one of the great Christian virtues. (laughs) So, first of all, creation. If we look at verse 13 to 16, the emphasis is on the fact that the unborn baby is lovingly called into existence as a unique person by a personal creator. Verse 14, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The literal Hebrew is is almost ecstatic. The literal Hebrew says, I praise you because I am fearfully, wonderfully, wonderful, your works. That's as as though David is just overwhelmed by the extraordinary nature of God's uh, work, handicraft in the womb. So modern biology emphasizes the chance nature that one particular sperm, just by chance, happens to meet one particular egg. And then after you've had that chance, you've got rigid mechanisms. One cell, click, two cells, click, four cells, click, eight cells, click. But the psalmist sees it totally different. He says our creation is not haphazard due to chance, And it's not mechanical due to inflexible physical laws. No, it is intentional and it's personal. God saw you and knew you and loved you and wove you together when you were a tiny speck in your mother's womb. And he created you as a unique individual. So there's creation and then there's covenant We find the language of covenant throughout this psalm. So, for instance, verse 1, you know me. The theologians say that that Hebrew word is much more than a sort of objective knowledge. That is a covenant commitment. God is involved and loving and knowing. Verse 3, you are familiar with all my ways. 
Verse 5, you've laid your hand on me. Verse 16, you saw me. You saw my frame. My unformed body in verse 16. So the God is not just observing what is going on. No, he is in a covenant. A covenant commitment to the being in the womb. And notice that it's not that the being in the womb knows that God is there and is responding. No, the initiative is entirely on God's side. It's a unilateral covenant. A unilateral covenant of grace. And then finally, continuity. David doesn't say that there was tissue in the womb that later became me. No, he emphasizes the continuity between the person as an adult writing the psalm and the being in the womb. That was me that you formed. That was me that you saw. I'm the same person. That was me that you wove together in the hidden place. John Stott put it like this. It's God's grace which confers on the unborn child from the moment of its conception both the unique status which it already enjoys and the unique destiny which it will later inherit. It is grace which holds together the duality of the actual and the potential, the already and the not yet. So one of the questions I'm often asked as somebody who speaks on these topics is when does human life begin? And whenever I'm asked that question, I try gently to say, I'm sorry, but that's the wrong question. Because we know that the being in the womb is human, and we know that it's living. So it's not a question of when life begins. What is the question? The real question is, when is there a person that we have a duty to protect? And when you put the question like that, you realize that it's not a scientific question. It's not a question of biology. You don't find a person with an electron microscope. You find a person by reaching out to them with love. Oliver O'Donovan said, we cannot expect biology to reveal the point at which God's covenant commitment to an individual starts. We discern persons only by love, by finding each person's humanity through interaction and commitment. I came across this ultrasound image on the internet The scan shows a tiny human embryo, about five millimeters in length. Just think what five millimeters is actually like. It's a tiny little scrap. But the parents have put this great heart over it and said, we're expecting a baby. So love sees a baby. Love is reaching out and seeing the value and significance, the humanity. As a pediatrician, I know that every child has their own personal photo album When I started work as a paediatrician, every photo album started with a fading Polaroid camera photograph of the baby just after birth. But these days, every baby's photo album starts with a grainy ultrasound image. And the parents, when they show the child later on, will say, that's you in the scan. That's when we first saw you. In other words, the parents are making exactly the same point as David does in Psalm 139. That's me that you formed, God. That's me that you saw. That's me that you worked together. I'm the same person. And as you go back in your own personal history, there is no point at which you can say, that's not me. That's actually what you looked like 
on the slide. That's what you looked like when you were born. That's what you looked like at 28 weeks. That's what you looked like at 18 weeks. That's what you looked like at six weeks. That's what you looked like at three weeks. That's what you looked like at three days. That's exactly what you looked like. And as you go back in your own personal history, is there any point at which you can say, no, 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 that's not me. That's just some kind of, well, bean, to use the word of the video. I don't think it is. At every point, when, even when you were a tiny bundle of cells, your heavenly Father knew you and loved you And what's more, he wrote down every day of your life. In fact, he even knew that we were going to be you spending this day talking about your development in the womb. But the perspective of Psalm 139 is made even more wonderful by the New Testament story of Christmas. Because God himself, the God of the universe, enters into the womb. And that changes everything. Jesus has experienced every phase of human existence. He was with us in the darkness of the womb as he will be with us in the darkness of the tomb. There's a sense in which there's nothing you can go through in your own human existence in which Jesus himself hasn't been there before and can go through it with you. And Luke records this wonderful incident in his gospel in chapter 1 Mary has received the astonishing news from the angel and she takes a deep breath and says I am the bond slave of the Lord let it be to me as you have said in other words Mary says yes she gives her consent she says I agree and then she runs to see her cousin Elizabeth who is also pregnant with the unborn John the Baptist to share this amazing news and as Mary runs into the house calling Elizabeth's name Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and says, Blessed are you, Mary, and blessed is the fruit of the womb. And why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord, notice those words, the mother of my Lord, should come to me. As soon as the sound of your greeting reaches my ears, reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And I think... Luke is trying to make the point that John the Baptist is leaping for joy at the presence of the unborn Jesus in the same way that the lame man is going to leap for joy 30 years later when Jesus walks by. So Jesus' story actually starts in the womb. But you can approximately work out how big my Lord is. And the answer is he's probably about three weeks after uh, conception. In other words, a tiny little speck. And yet, Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, says, my Lord. And so, have you wondered what God in human form actually looks like? You know, wouldn't it have been amazing to be in Galilee and seen what God in human form actually looked like? Well, I can tell you what God in human form looks like. And it looks like that. That's exactly what the unborn Jesus looked like. Isn't that amazing that God chooses to make himself as like, just like us? He enters fully and totally into our humanity, into the human experience. So our humanity is not a barrier which comes between us and God. No, it's actually the very means by which God is revealed. 
Now, this is a picture of my hand, actually, and one of the babies, one of the very premature babies on the baby unit. And I've often stared at this hand and thought about it from a spiritual point of view and thought, where is God in that picture? Maybe I'm like this tiny little hand clinging on and God is that great big hand which is supporting me. Yeah, well, yes, that's how it often feels. I'm desperately hanging on and that great hand is there to support me. But wonderfully and mysteriously, you can spin the picture around and the God of the universe chooses to turn himself into the little hand. He becomes vulnerable and dependent in order to teach us the dignity and the worth of the tiny and the weak. And so as we ask ourselves, how do we respond to abortion? Then I've been very moved by this saying from a Christian philosopher, Joseph Piper. Love is a way of saying to a person, it's good that you exist. It's good that you are in the world. The problem with abortion is that it says exactly the opposite. It says it's bad that you exist. It will be much better for the world if you did not exist. But love always says it's good that you exist. So to conclude my part, my own conviction is that even in the so-called hard cases, such as when there is a severe abnormality of the baby, the destruction of an innocent life A life that is like Jesus can't be right. It can't be an authentically Christian response. I believe there's always a better way. It's not an easy way. The way is often costly and painful, but it's a better way. So how can we respond to abortion in a way that's authentically Christian? Celia is now going to address that question. How can we respond in a constructive and compassionate and practical way to abortion? What is the way of Christ? Annette was so excited. She'd finally arrived in London to start her nurse's training. Back home in Uganda, she'd worked so hard for this opportunity. Now at the age of 18, her dreams were being fulfilled. However, Ugandan village life had not equipped her to handle the city. Naive, alone, and friendless, she was vulnerable to the young man who persuaded her he loved her. It was not long before she became pregnant. Annette was so innocent, it took her some time to realize her condition. Convinced the disgrace would lead to the end of her nurse training, she agreed to a termination. And as the pregnancy was quite advanced, her medical abortion meant that she saw and held her 16-week baby boy. That would have been traumatizing enough, but Annette's situation was made so much worse by the fact that she'd been brought up in a deeply Christian home and had learned from a young age that abortion was wrong. So her heart was broken by the loss of her baby, but so was her self-respect and her sense of worth. She was filled with shame. She continued her nurse training, but a settled sense of pain was always in her chest. She went to church repeatedly asking for forgiveness, but always left feeling there was never enough that she could do to atone for the loss of her child. She gradually became depressed. 
Her low self-esteem and crippling sense of shame made her even more vulnerable to abusive relationships. She eventually married, but her husband turned out to be a violent man. Her first two pregnancies both ended in stillbirth, but she did go on to have two healthy children. But shortly after, her husband left. We're going to leave Annette there for a moment. Um, And as Hugh mentioned at the beginning, I work for a Christian charity, and we provide a counselling service for women facing the crisis of an unplanned pregnancy, or like Annette, struggling emotionally after an abortion. Abortion, as we've seen from Psalm 139, is not God's solution to an unplanned pregnancy. But what kind of response can we as Christians have to this issue in our society? Should we be campaigning outside abortion clinics or lobbying Parliament to change the law? And what if it's personal? What if your girlfriend or your daughter tells you that they've had an abortion? What if you've pressurized a daughter or a girlfriend or a partner into having an abortion? What if you've had a termination yourself? What if as a medic or as a health professional you've performed or participated in abortion? These are very difficult questions, but they are the ones we must ask. So let's try and find some answers. We're going to turn to John chapter 8, verses 2 to 11. You can find this on page 1073. And let's read this. So that's John chapter 8, on page 1073. Starting from verse 2. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered round him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So let's just think about this story for a moment. Jesus has begun his public ministry and he's already made enemies of jealous religious leaders. They're out to get him, but they'd prefer to discredit him rather than incur crowd trouble because Jesus is very popular. So they've devised this trap, and it's one of several that we see in the Gospels. So as Jesus is sitting there teaching this crowd of people in the temple, in bursts a group of men dragging um, this woman. They're the respected religious leaders of the day, and they say that she's caught in the actual act of adultery. And they make her stand before them. The Jewish law specified that to be convicted of adultery, you had to be caught in the actual act. So it's quite possible that she's not properly dressed. 
and they're making her stand before this group in a public place. Teacher, they say, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? If Jesus answered she shouldn't be stoned, they could claim he was disregarding the law. But if he answered she should be stoned, they could claim he was rebelling against the Roman authorities who had forbidden the Jews to carry out the death penalty. So they thought they'd got him on the horns of an impossible dilemma. It's worth adding here that the Pharisees were right. The Old Testament law did specify the death penalty for adultery, although it was not obligatory, (laughs) but it was definitely to include both parties, not just the woman. So this has led some commentators to suggest that the religious leaders had actually bribed a man to stage the event with this woman with the agreement that he wouldn't be called to account. Whatever the reason, he is conspicuously absent. (laughs) And if that is the case, it reveals a callous disregard for this woman. Anyway, none of this, we can be sure, was lost on Jesus. He saw it all. And then at first, Jesus refuses to engage with them and uh, answer their question. He averts his gaze and he squats down and he writes in the dust. It's only when they press him that he looks up and with brilliant simplicity evades their trap. Verse 7, if any one of you is without sin, let him throw the first stone. And then he continues with that doodling in the dust. And of course, one by one, they slink away. When he finally straightens up again, he finds a woman standing there alone. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. It is such a moving story. In fact, it's one of my favourites. It always makes the feminist in me want to cheer. (laughs) But what has this got to do with abortion, you might ask? What I'd like us to do is to look through the two lenses we're given in this story, how the religious leaders saw her um, and her sin, but then how Jesus saw her. There's one woman, one set of facts, two different perspectives. So let's have a look at what the religious leaders saw when they looked at her first. Firstly, verse 4, they saw her as guilty. There was no denying her guilt. She'd been caught in the act. And in their eyes, she deserved the maximum punishment allowed. And they seemed to be equally willing to deliver it there and then, even if it got them into trouble with the Romans. They saw no grounds for mercy. She'd broken the law. She was guilty, plain and simple. But something followed on from this. They also saw her as contemptible. They made her stand before the group, verse 3. She was an adulteress. She was a sinner. They didn't have to worry about how she was feeling. She had forfeited their respect. It didn't matter that they were using her because she didn't count. For me, what's worse than their self-righteousness in judging her, their hypocrisy in judging her, is this utter disrespect for her as a human being. She's just a pawn in their game. She might die gruesomely as a result, but that was okay. She didn't matter. It was all she deserved anyway. All of that, I think, we can agree adds up to judgment. But how did Jesus see her? What did he see when he looked at this woman? Firstly, he saw someone in need of compassion. You know, there's been lots and lots of discussion about that. Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground acres of writing (laughs) 
the short and the long of it is that we've not been told. Maybe it was just his way of controlling his anger. I think the hypocrisy and judgmental attitudes would definitely have provoked his anger. But I like to think it was also a way of showing compassion for this woman's humiliation. By turning his eyes to the ground, he was refusing to take part in her public shaming. Just again, imagine her standing there, probably not properly dressed, in front of a crowd of jeering, mocking men. Jesus only finally looks at her in the eye when there's nobody else to see. He had compassion for her. But secondly, he saw someone who was worthy of respect. Verse 10, where are they? Has no one condemned you? As a counsellor, I think what he's trying to do here, well, he was the original of all counsellors, I guess. (laughs) Um, But I think what he's wanting her to do is to acknowledge with her own lips to actually say the words, no one condemns me. I am not condemned. You know, it's one thing for her accusers to melt away, thereby tacitly acknowledging their own guilt. But it's another thing for her to actually say, I am not condemned by them. And it's the best way to deal with her shame, her own loss of self-respect. Shame comes when we feel condemned and judged by others, not only for what we've done, but for who we are. Jesus was helping her to see that no one in the whole world could point the finger at her because that finger was also pointing at them. Her accusers saw her as valueless. Jesus saw her as someone of worth and dignity, entitled to respect. By giving her that grace of respect, he helped to restore her dignity and worth. She could never conclude she didn't matter to Jesus, no matter what she had done. So thirdly, I think Jesus saw someone who could be forgiven, someone in need of forgiveness. Neither do I condemn you, he says. And of course, if we think about it, ironically, he's the one person there who was without sin, who was entitled to throw a stone, if you like. But of course, he doesn't want to. He chooses instead to throw her the lifeline of forgiveness. In his grace, it is never Jesus' desire to condemn. He would always rather offer forgiveness and new life. Remember John three seventeen. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Her accusers judged her, but Jesus, the judge of all the world, declared her free of condemnation. So in such ways, Jesus treated this woman with enormous respect and extraordinary grace. He saw beyond her sin to the beauty of her person and he called it out of her with grace, compassion and respect. Put quite simply, he loved her. So then verse 11, go now and leave your life of sin, which are Jesus' final words to this woman, perhaps come as a bit of a shock to us. But I think it's so important that we also see that he, calls, he gave her what I call the grace of the truth. His compassion for her doesn't mean that what she had done didn't matter. And he never at any point abandons the truth that she'd broken the law. But he didn't deal with this until he had first shown her grace, the grace of compassion, respect, and forgiveness. By showing her mercy, Jesus enabled her to be in a place where she could hear and receive the truth. Once she knew she was valued and respected by him, 
she then can respond positively to his challenge to change the way she lived. So grace and truth together. Let's return to Annette. That story I told you at the beginning actually happened 30 years ago, but it was only just last year that Annette came to us and took our post-abortion support program. It was a real struggle for her in view of her sense of shame, but there was also a massive relief that at last she had found somewhere safe and accepting, non-judgmental, where she could talk freely of her past. She worked very hard with the programme. She learnt to express her anger towards those who'd failed and abused her, and they were many. She experienced the freedom of accepting responsibility for her part in what had happened and letting go of all her excuses and justifications. But she still struggled with forgiveness. She still felt she had to pay for what she'd done, that somehow she wasn't forgivable. And as a result, she still felt unworthy and she still felt depressed. And as her counsellors, this really grieved us because we knew that if she didn't find the final freedom from the past, well, she wouldn't find any final freedom from the past until she could accept forgiveness and accept herself and the choice that she had made. So in an attempt to communicate to her the grace and compassion of the God that she still felt so condemned by, my colleague shared this story from John 8 about the woman caught in adultery. And she told it beautifully so that Annette really fully understood the mercy that Jesus showed this woman. And she was nodding away. Yes, yes, this woman had done a dreadful thing, but Jesus still loved her and could forgive her. And then my colleague did a remarkable thing. She said to Annette, now imagine that woman had not been caught in the act of adultery, but walking out of the abortion clinic. Would Jesus have had the same response to her? And for the first time, we began to see understanding and hope dawn in her eyes. We could see her thinking, maybe, just maybe, even this that she had done could be forgiven too. And actually, Annette did go on to find full forgiveness. And we witnessed a beautiful transformation in her. Her demeanor changed, her posture changed, her depression lifted. You could see it in her eyes. And that burden she'd felt in her chest for 30 years went. One one of the most wonderful things for me as her counsellor was um, to see that she felt properly free at last to grieve that lost child um, and to name him and to give him equal status alongside her other two children that she had lost in stillbirth. Everyone knew about those other two, but no one knew about this secret loss. And to be able to give him equal status for her other two lost children was very freeing and liberating for her. So beautiful, Annette did well, but what about us? What can we learn from this? How can the lessons we learn from Christ be applied to the problem of abortion in our society? How do we answer those questions I posed at the beginning? I just want to say two things in finishing. Firstly, let's hold equally to to grace and truth. John 1.14 describes Jesus as full of grace and truth. Basically, the religious leaders had got it right, hadn't they, in thinking the woman was guilty. They had a hold of the truth, but they had no grace. And the church, I'm afraid, has sadly in the past often been guilty of this. We've been like this on the issue of abortion. We've been very clear that abortion is wrong, but we've lacked compassion in the way we've talked about it. 
However, I, I also have to say it is possible to swing the other way and to show so much compassion that we step outside the boundaries of God's truth. I've been reading a book on forgiveness recently and he put it very well, I thought. He said, truth without love kills. That's what the religious leaders were doing. But love without truth always lies. So if we are to be like Christ, we have to speak the truth in love. We have to be full of both grace and truth. And it's not easy So yes, we do need to speak out about abortion, but in a way that doesn't leave a woman who's made that choice, or men for that matter, been involved, feeling judged and condemned. We should speak, as John said, with grief and tears, not hate in our voices. Secondly, I want to pull out the fact that abortion can be forgiven. So what if abortion has touched you personally in any sense? You need to know that whatever your involvement as a pregnant woman, as a partner, or as a parent, or as a professional, there is forgiveness. Abortion is forgivable. Jesus does not wish to condemn you, and we should not condemn ourselves. Self-condemnation holds us in a place of judgment and actually can block us from receiving forgiveness and acceptance, that, that mercy that is waiting for us in the Father. So if you have been personally affected by abortion and you know in your heart that it's something that you need to sort out, please can I urge you to seek help. The Pregnancy Choices Directory um, will enable you to locate a centre near you. It won't be easy, but it will be worth it. Please feel free to come and speak to John and I after the service, or again confidentially at another time. Or you may like to contact the prayer ministry team today and have someone pray with you. Whatever you do, do something. Let's close with a prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, we are awed by your love and mercy that you showed to that woman caught in the very act of disobedience and sin. You looked at her and you loved her. Your yearning to see her healed and restored triumphed over your right to judge her. And oh Lord, teach us to be the same. Never let us forget that we too deserve your just judgment. We pray that women and men who struggle with unplanned pregnancy or who have chosen abortion will know that your people of all people will give them a welcome, listen with compassion, and help them to find healing and forgiveness. And for those of us who've been involved in abortion, please help us to find the courage and humility to seek the help we need and to know your loving acceptance and forgiveness and the chance for a new life and a new beginning. We ask this, Lord, for your honour and glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Christians Engaging Culture. I strongly encourage you to check out our website as there are some excellent resources on the subject of abortion there. 
I would even claim it's the best collation of articles from the Christian viewpoint on the internet on this subject of abortion. Uh, one particular touching video is of a, of a woman who kept her child even after the traumatic experience of rape. You can find it at cec.stthomas.org.au. That's cec.st-thomas.org.au. Until next time, always remember that Jesus is a far greater saviour than you are a sinner. Thank you.